Today's guest on Around the Coin is Rishi Khanna. Rishi is the CEO of StockTwits. StockTwits provides real-time stock and crypto international market data to over 8 million members and their community. They were started in 2008. They've been around for a while. Rishi and I cover a lot of ground across AI. We talk about international markets, investment strategies, the role of governments. Hope you find this conversation interesting and valuable. If you do, please give us a thumbs up or a share wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps us grow. And without further ado, here is Rishi Khanna. Great. Rishi, thanks for hopping on. I'm excited to chat with you more. You started StockTwits, which I was saying in our pre-show, is one of my favorite apps. I'd love to just get the quick background on what inspired you to join, build, work on, and maybe just describe StockTwits. Give us the blurb. Yeah, sure. StockTwits was founded actually back in 08, 09. Um, and so it's been been around since kind of that first wave of kind of the social, the rise of social and whatnot. I've been actually a user since about 2010 and I joined the company as CEO in January 2020. Quiet year, not much happened in 2020. But for me, I think, oh, I guess for the audience that doesn't know, I mean, StockTwits is one of the original social platforms focused on the retail investing and trading community. Think of it in the simplest way. It started as a verticalized Twitter. The, the founders of StockTwits back in 09 invented the cash tag, which is now ubiquitous kind of across the world of investing and trading. And, uh, and over the years, we've kind of evolved to hopefully deliver more value to our community. And I think to your question of what excites me about building, why did I join and stuff? I think if you look at it, StockTwits has a highly engaged, just organically grown and built community. And I think that's really important when you think about social. When you think about community and social, there's a lot of companies that have come and gone across a lot of domains, um, especially, especially over, over the last kind of two or three years with the rise of kind of retail and in, in the investing and trading world. You've seen a lot of startups get funded back in 2020 and 21 and try to do the, the social thing. And it's hard. And most of them aren't around anymore or have pivoted to something completely different. I mean, to me, that was you know, what was so exciting about doing StockTwits is we have this immense, tremendous community. And how do we deliver more value to them, right? Beyond the conversation, beyond connecting about stocks, ETFs, crypto, just markets in general, whatever it might be, how can we deliver more value to them across their investing journey, trading journey? And and that's that's kind of what has how how I ended up here, what's been the driver for us over the last three, four years. So what's been the primary focus points of where you believe that you can add more value to the community? The way I think about it, I mean the way we think about it kind of at Stockwitz is I think about it from the investing life cycle kind of perspective. And and it is, I would use my hands, but we're on small screen here, right? Uh, but it is like kind of, it is this like cycle where you know, it starts at this ideation phase. You know, generally speaking, it goes from ideation to research, to execution, to management, to ideation, to research, to execution, management. And whether you're investing in stocks, whether you're investing in crypto, whether you're investing in private companies, bonds, whatever it is, you're generally going through that process. The data sets you use are different. The sources of information you use are different. The types of information that matter and that you prioritize are different. But the process, the life cycle is very similar. And for us, we also want to put kind of community and that social layer at the kind of at the heart of it. Cause that is, you know, no matter what, that is the heart of, of StockTwits. And so how do we deliver value across that life cycle? Social and community naturally kind of, I think, deliver across ideation for sure and research for sure. Hey, Tesla reported earnings and they reported X, Y, and Z. And here's what I think about it, right? And you find your tribe and community that's talking about Tesla and you can, you share those things, but how do we further enhance the value that we're, we can provide to you because you're already spending a lot of time on the platform, on Stockwoods, whether on the app or on the website. And so whether it's in the research front, execution, right? So we added a broker dealer and the ability to buy and sell stocks and actually the ability to uh, buy and sell um, options as well recently. And so closing the loop with execution. Now, there's not a lot of creativity that goes in execution. It's a highly regulated uh, affair in the US. And so that's that test is like somewhat of a commoditized phase, but 
It's part of the life cycle. And then portfolio management, an area where I think there's a lot of weakness for folks. But coming from, I, I spent most of my career in the kind of alternatives, investing world and hedge funds and whatnot. And so portfolio management is actually a very key element to kind of delivering returns. But those, we think about delivering value in the form of tools, connectivity, data, how to enhance kind of social conversations around that life cycle event. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Where traditionally in, in the broader financial market, where is most of the money made? Is it on management services? Is it on one part of that, that cycle? I think it's actually servicing the cycle. Like if you're asking like the broader industry, right? Now you're at, and, and I'll stick to the broader kind of consumer side of the world, right? You look at kind of financial advisory, wealth management, and especially given so much of the wealth is with the older generation, the boomer generation or whatnot. There's a lot of it is around the holistic value delivered between financial advisors. A lot of it is at the product level, right? So ETFs are a product that generate fees, right? Whether it's, now, some of them are really low, right? Two basis points or one basis point, so 0.01%. But there are many ETFs and mutual funds and other products that generate half a percent, 1% fees. And so it is the kind of, that's where a bulk, when you look at the entire industry from a consumer perspective, a lot of it is in that kind of asset-based fee world. Not, not to say that there's interest and margin and those elements that are in the investing and trading world, those are important revenue sources. And that goes to that execution side. But when you, when you think of the bulk of it, it is around kind of a holistic management of the life cycle. And then you, know, you break it down into pieces across the kind of the more frag fragmented value yeah. chain. There. Yeah. Tell, I'm going to make a statement and you tell me what you would add or take away from it. So I think of the, the purpose and power of the market of investors as to make the most efficient investment decisions possible, effectively allocating capital that's available in the market. Of, if you add up all the people who can invest money, you want to put it in the places that can deliver the most value to humanity. And some of that is has to be in very safe returns, and some of it has to be in very high risk, high reward returns. And then stock twits is basically the information layer. So it's allowing people to determine where to put their chips based on the information that they're receiving. And then they mesh that information with their entire life's world. Hey, I got tw Tesla data income statement alone is just is half the equation. I have to mesh that with my computational method, which in a simple form might just be what I think in my head and I know, but maybe it's an advanced model in an Excel document or some very complex software tool. Either way, it's serving the same function to interpret the data and then make a decision. If you think of the, the trajectory of where we're going as a society, we have a bunch of new tools, you know, AIs out there. We have highly yeah. advanced uh, computational power. We have highly advanced social networks. Where do you think we're going? What's the, what's the improvement potential for investing going forward? Is it on, if that question makes yeah. sense, if you want to add anything to it, but Go ahead. Yeah, there's there's a lot of layers there. I'm glad you went there, but yeah, you know, let's let's un unpeel the layers, and I'll I'll start kind of where you started. I think we generally agree, like the purpose of our economic system, which is a capitalistic economic system, and, and the markets are a tool within that, is to uh, ideally most efficiently allocate capital to where it delivers the most value back to society. I'm not going to go off on my soapbox if we may have started to miss the mark there on some things. And that's a, that's a different can thing. Can you take but, a quick um, tangent? Can you tell, can you give me the bullet points on that? Like what, where do you think we've made mistakes? Well, I, I think, I think one of the challenges that, you know, and this is probably a unpopular or a limited view is I feel like we've, we're currently in an era of capitalism for the sake of capitalism, money for the sake mm. of money, meaning the end goal is actually just, Money uh, and money is a tool, right? Again, if you really, if we think back about systems and societies and history, money is meant to be a tool to help facilitate a marketplace as efficiently as possible. But capitalism run amok is a problem, and and you see that with kind of what's happening in the U.S. with it is very much becoming a barbell society, right? The wealth gap is massively growing into haves and have-nots, and it doesn't look like there's really any end in sight 
And so that's that's kind of the, the bullet point I was alluding to there is how do we make sure that capitalism is serving the purpose to actually benefit humanity and society, right? And whether you look at societies in the form of nation states or with the boundaries of countries, or if you look at societies all of humanity and you know, everyone on planet Earth, that doesn't even matter because we're kind of failing at all levels. But so that's where are we in this era of capitalism for the sake of capitalism? That's kind of a little bit what it feels like to me. Would you agree that that's, it's failing to make the distinction between money and wealth? where wealth is the accumulation of, of actual value. I have a house, I have a instrument, I have a, all the things that money can buy, food, yeah. right, transportation, and then put dollars in a bank account is, is potential wealth. It's, and there's uh, that difference it's ultimately, there. I, I think, I mean, I think that gets to it a bit, but I think it's ultimately, what are we trying to do for society or humanity? What is the system meant to mm-hmm. do? I think it's meant to make better quality of life for all of us, right? Uh, and, and regardless of the kind of what we're trying to do. So yeah, wealth, there's nothing wrong with wealth and being able to, hey, different people are going to put different effort in into different things and different have different perspectives on a lot. That's fine. So accumulating wealth in whatever that means to you, whether that means the big house or just, hey, having a house and being food secure and educated and healthcare and things like that versus the then, okay, now we don't give a shit about anybody else because we got our house. And so like now I just, you know, kind of want more and more and more. And I don't, you know, it doesn't matter kind of what, mm. what the impact of that is. But we could, we could probably go on uh, yeah. this, <laughs> this tangent for a while, but uh, yeah. I'm having to bring it back to the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me ask you this. Uh, do you feel that the, the the segue forward is through social? If I think about what what makes the investment markets better, and better is loosely yeah. defined, but I, I would think of it as more efficient, right? Money is spent on something that ends up delivering value to somebody, as opposed yeah. to just going nowhere. People can talk about different decisions. People can follow somebody else who is full time focused on this. That's maybe using some algorithm or a tool. So right, people are yeah. benefiting from somebody else's work and then sharing in a cut of that. Traditionally, that's financial advisors, but I think that's right. more advanced now. Is there other methods of intelligent investors, intelligent investing that you're starting to see with some of the dynamics of AI or, or social or something else? Yeah, I mean, I think listen, AI is very new and we can probably definitely spend a bunch of time talking about that and we will, I'm sure. Um, what I will say is I believe and I strongly believe that investing trading, participating in the markets is very much an apprenticeship game. Meaning Mm. you learn by doing and you then learn from not necessarily a singular mentor. If you think about like kind of what we probably traditionally think about what we read as kids in books about apprenticeships and stuff, right? Like the carpenter or something like that. But, you know, a community of mentors based on your personality, your style, your risk profile, all these things that also, by the way, change over time, morph over time. And so I think why social is extremely important in a world of infinite access and virtually infinite opportunities is that, hey, you learn by doing and you can find your tribe and community that you can share ideas with, learn from their mistakes, learn from their successes, how they think about things. So, you know, whether Mm -hmm. I'm a a swing trader or momentum trader, or maybe I'm really just focused on, I'm passionate about the cannabis industry and cannabis stocks. Those are all different tribes. Or maybe I'm a value value investor in, in the most traditional sense, which in our era, sucked for a long time, right? And mm-hmm. now maybe coming back a little bit. But you can find those tribes. And and I think that's what the power of social and community is because it may not be your friends, right? It may not be the people you physically have access to because for a multitude of reasons. And that is the both the gift of the internet and, and the connectivity age that we're in. I mean, it's also, there's also obviously a, a burden and a curse side to it, but the opportunity to actively participate in the markets and learn from the tribes and just exchange ideas. Learning isn't always just talk at me. Learning is exchanging ideas, having conversations, breaking down whatever it is, whichever style and and strategy and sectors and industries and markets you're interested in. There is a community for you to connect with and talk to. And, And that's, I think, the power of social and the evolution of participating in the markets. Mm. And what I'll, what I'll, and to kind of close the loop to 
But your question is, I do think, especially in the U.S., like the markets are one of the last remaining bastions of building wealth, of having an opportunity to build wealth, because a lot of the other routes that may have existed in the past of just pure hard work and stuff have been devalued by like kind of just our system, right? And assets build on assets and, and that's how you build wealth. And so if you're not participating in the markets, and one could argue to stock markets versus real estate markets, but you know, assets, if you're not able to participate in that, or if you're, you've never been exposed and understand that that's something you can participate in, you are at a disadvantage to building wealth. I mean, that's why I think it's important for everyone to have exposure. It doesn't mean everyone should be trading or investing in a full, hardcore, self-directed way, but everyone should be educated about it, understand it, and have the opportunity to, if they want to dive in, right? Hopefully that answered your question there. It, it does. I, I heard a statistic recently that, and I could be slightly off on this, but I think it's trajectorily correct. If you're between the ages of 20 and 40, so if you're between the ages of 40 and 60, there's a 70% chance that somebody else has managed your money throughout your life. If you're between the ages of 20 and 40, there's a 70% chance you're managing your own money. Basically, the trajectory is towards younger people managing their money away from financial advisors. I would imagine that trend is true because more information and tools, people have more access with the internet. Do you think the, what, what are the impacts of that? And maybe when I think of the impacts from that, I think what are the new areas of investing that hadn't come up before? You mentioned momentum investor, or if you're a yeah. niche investor. And, and then also like of the people on StockTwits, are they mostly just casual investors in this class? So going to StockTwits, I think one of the unique things about our community is that we have a very large community. We just crossed 8 million members over the summer, mm -hmm. highly engaged audience. There's millions of people that come to the platform every month, but there's a pretty good distribution there. I know the first level and, and that people always ask about is you know, kind of this investing versus trading thing, right? Which are two very different styles and strategies and are, are different. And so our community obviously is compared to general consumer you know, in the platforms out there, we are obviously more skewed towards the tra active trading side. That being said, our last survey we did, it's about 40, 60. So 40 identify themselves as more active traders versus 60 mm. identify themselves as kind of buy and hold investors type thing, right? Yeah, but it's, it's also the opportunity the benefit that we have of a very large community. Now, social, also just kind of diving to that from the StockTwits perspective is social's hard. I mean, we know that social's mm -hmm. hard when it's not just kind of putting up pictures and stuff like that. There's a reason Twitter of all the big platforms is kind of last, right? And, and mm -hmm. I'm not even commenting on pre or post Musk or anything. Like it was just Pinterest is bigger, Snapchat is bigger, Facebook, all those are obviously bigger. And because diving in and sharing ideas, like written ideas and talking about it is hard. It's intimidating, especially in verticals where, you know, we're talking about money and markets or you know, whatever it might be. And when we look at social, there's there's that cohort of like really the, the creators and the ones that are out there sharing. And then there's the contributors that are participating, but maybe aren't the heavy volume of folks. And then there's the consumers, right? These are bulk of the user base is there to consume, take in the information, to learn maybe the like posts and share things, but they're not going to write out their own responses. And so it's our opportunity and, and responsibility to deliver deliver value to that consuming community and connect them with the right creators and contributors and, and connect those dots. And so that's kind of how it reflects with our community. To the other part of the conversation that you started with there, what is different today? Uh, I think one of the biggest things that I've said before, and, and I, it's I don't, you know, I think anyone would disagree at this point, but there's a lot more options when it comes to investing your money. Back in the day when I was growing up and my dad was doing this portfolio, it was like stocks and mutual funds, right? I mean, like literally that was pretty much it. And there weren't like, I mean, everything was through the newspaper. And I used to like in the eighties, I remember I used to take the stock prices out of the newspaper for my dad and put it in a graph notebook mm -hmm. and stuff. And, oh, and you know, the five or 10 stocks that he owned or maybe mutual funds, whatever it was. And like I was his mint.com chart mm. stuff there. But today, not only do you have access to stocks in the US, you have access to global market stocks. You have access to options weren't 
So that common thing for back in the 80s amongst general public. So you have options. You have alternatives nowadays, right? I mean, all these platforms, whether alternatives are private investments like startups and things like that, the crypto world, right? Forex, futures. There's all great platforms out there, real estate, whether commercial, residential, fractional, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the number of different ways for one, for you or I to choose to allocate capital is significantly larger than it was before. And the information available to us on all those assets and and securities and stuff is also much, much better. And so that goes to kind of where we started with the conversation around financial advisors and the distribution 40 to 60 versus Mm -hmm. 20 to 40. I will say, I mean, my, my first just more kind of basic comment to that would be, Listen, as you get older and you build more wealth, you have less time, but you don't want to make sure it's managed well. The the cohort today, I think we have, we'd have to look at this in a more cohort analysis-based way. If you look at that 20 to 25 cohort today or 25 to 30, 20 years from now, what percentage of them will they have money managed by others? Now, 20 years from now, what is others? Is it AI? Is it all machines and stuff? <laughs> or is it still people? That is... That's a trillion dollar question that everyone's probably scrambling to figure out and hope they have the right answer to. But I do think there's also amongst the young generation, not just in finance, but definitively in finance, there's a larger distrust of institutions and there's a larger distrust of kind of the way it was, so to say. And and there's the ability to take more ownership. And I think we're seeing that reflected in investing as well as in other other areas. And so how does that evolve, right? And how do how does how do we enable that to evolve? And so platforms like StopTwits are there to help you be more self-directed right, and right. Again, learn and share ideas and ideally and ideally have fun and make money doing it, right? And build wealth doing it. But there's a ton of effort going on in the industry right now to figure out, hey, what is what does financial advisory of the future look like, right? Because it's probably not going to look like what it looks like today for the most part. Why, why do you think there's such an attack from politicians like Elizabeth Warren, who's openly declared war on crypto? Is the, the simple take would be the U.S. owns the global reserve currency. The banks have a tremendous amount of financial upside from that reality. And the banks are influencing the politi- politicians. And if crypto were to come in and disintermediate the banking control and maybe the global reserve, global reserve, global reserve currency power of the USD, that prevents down, that uh, presents some downside risk. And so you see this natural resistance. Do you take on that dichotomy or, or do you see something more going on as to why there's political resistance no, against I mean, crypto? Let's, but like, let's let's look at the underlying assumption of what you are saying, right? The underlying assumption of what you are saying is that a decentralized digital currency is better than a uh, centralized, central government controlled currency. And there, there's, I don't know that I believe that. I, I think that's probably better source for chaos than not. But I don't know that we're sophisticated enough to be able to handle that. So. On that premise right there, right? I mean, that that's a premise that says, okay, if we believe that. Now, you, you can still have both sides of that kind of uh, statement be true, right? So why do we, you know, why are we seeing like government pushback and stuff? I, I don't know that I'm like a, I believe in like the depth of that conspiracy of saying that, hey, you know, the banks and this and that. I think there, I've spent a lot of time in crypto. I've done a lot. I mean, like I'm pretty familiar with it and was just having this conversation with folks two days ago that I spent a lot of time in crypto. But the challenge is the industry largely has been about just price action and quick wins and building big bags and getting out, right? And so the actual value that's lately been, that's being delivered, right? What real value is being delivered? And it's not going to happen. It's not happening really at the coin level. Yeah, blockchain technology is interesting. I think it's more valuable in a B2B setting than there are really B2C examples. And I think I, I was I was hopeful that gaming was going to be an interesting place to get a foothold. I think what everyone's realized is building great games is actually really hard. And you know, it's really kind of easy to build up hype and sell a few tokens up front and sell a few 
few NFTs up front and and then, oh, we tried. Sorry, we're just going to take the few million we have left and kind of cash out, which is generally what we've seen over 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 the last few years. I, I don't I don't know that. I I think listen the on the government policy side, there's too many people that are uninformed, whether it's the Elizabeth Warrens or not. I think they're trying to. They come from a place that the problem they're trying to solve is the wealth gap. And the problem they're trying to solve is the fact that directionally from a wealth gap perspective and a sustainable perspective, the U.S., we have a lot of structural problems. In my opinion, started kind of in the 80s with Reaganomics and everything that happened during then that kind of set us up for this calamity where that we're heading towards very quickly. But, you know, yeah, I don't think... They have the right policies, but at this point, I don't even know if they have the capability of putting right policies in place just because of the logjam of that would mean people would have to agree and have discourse and agree to disagree, but move forward on things and not get everything that they want. So that's if we're going to blend the the economics and politics side of the conversation, which which is fair because that's that's reality, right? We pick an economic system, we pick a political system, and we hope they work. Yeah, I guess I'm 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 somewhat surprised to hear you say that you're undecided as to whether or not you think a global reserve currency managed by the U.S. government is going to perform better in the long term than a cryptographically backed Bitcoin currency combined with other currencies on top of that. But again, when you say perform, perform in what context? What's the purpose of a currency? It's a tool. It's just a tool. It's not the goal. Yeah. I guess I would define perform as have stability. In, in a currency that's designed to have stability, like uh, but the, here here's 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 my linchpin of the of the perspective is that if one or two people are capable of raising interest rates for effectively the entire world and controlling monetary supply for the entire world, that would be akin to a dictatorship from a political power standpoint. If one person has all the control, then they might make the right decision most of the time, but. If you believe a democratic system, which is a decentralized voting mechanism, is better for government, then you would view a decentralized voting mechanism for money to be also a more efficient way. So I, I think but, that's very wrong, Ryan. De- democratic voting is not the same thing as decentralized. That would Decentralized would mean that everything we do is referendum-driven. That's decentralized. And that's that's like a decentralized coin analogy, right? And again, it's not, the, yes, okay, hey, we have a, a Fed chairman and a Fed committee. And so it's a committee of however many people are on the Fed that vote to raise interest rates. Today, the U.S. is the global reserve. That doesn't mean it's going to be the global reserve forever, right? Powers come and go. And you know, 50 years from now, it may not be the U.S., right? But going back to, okay, Hey, we have a committee that can change interest rates. By the way, that committee can be fired. We we can vote and change that committee in and out through our government. It's we, we have to separate that the U.S. is a global influence from how our system works because those are two things that can move in different directions. But then, hey, we have the opportunity to vote on senators and house folks and presidents and stuff that that actually change that system. And, and why do we have that? Right? Why do we have governments? We have governments because humans are tribal primates and we need, we want to be organized in societies. What I argue, and I used to say this two, three years ago with the rise of like kind of DeFi and everything with that, was that we will have a truly decentralized, global decentralized currency when we have a truly global decentralized humanity. Mm. And I'm betting you one will never happen, right? Because that's not how humans want to be. And so when you say the tool we need to govern society. Now, does that mean we cannot have a global currency? Yeah, that's attainable one day, but that's a whole different tribal problem. And this just goes back to behavioral behavioral psychology and how humans operate. Can we just have no countries? Can we have no boundaries? Right? Like theoretically, but does it seem realistic? And yeah, we could have a dominant global currency. And, and that could still happen, right? It could, something like a USDC could eventually morph. And you could see, there's the potentials mm. there. I don't think it's something that happens in two years, five years. There's also this level in you know society today, especially with younger people of impatience, and they think everything happens like super fast. I was just reading the meme today. I don't even know if it was a meme. It was just something we covered on Stockwood in our newsletter where the CEO of Costco is changing and he worked his way up over 40 years. He started by working a forklift. 
And he's now the CEO of Costco, but it took 40 years. I can tell you the young generation doesn't necessarily have that same ethos and understanding. They're like, oh, we should be able to be CEO in five years, right? Kind of thing. And, and, there's, and that's a little bit of function of information and society and technology and you know, everything that's happened. But I think the same can apply to currency. Does it mean that we can never have a global currency that is... No, I don't think it doesn't mean that, but I think it's it's not as straightforward as, hey, we just have a decentralized currency because we don't like what Powell is doing right now. Because mm. Powell won't be around forever, right? Powell will be gone in two years. And then you can have somebody that's just going to take interest rates back down to zero. And you know what? That causes a whole shit ton of problems, as we've seen. And I don't, again, when I just come back to, we're, we're still people. We're still trying to govern people. And it's not a vacuum of just money for the sake of money or or charts for the sake of charts. And that's where that's where D, DeFi and decentralization struggles because it tries to disconnect things from how humans work. Yeah. One thing I'm sensing in you that I also feel is that there's no steady state solution for the world that will just work indefinitely. And I think that's a, a fallacy that traps people into certain political ideologies or even crypto ideologies or financial ideologies. It really is an adaptation based on the technology and probably the culture of of the of the world that we live in today. One of the and so I think people look for what's a what's a foundational model that can be applied across ongoing technological layers and across long t- periods of time. One of them I think is the blend of we'll call it power in the U.S. between the states and the, and the federal government, where it seems to work yeah. really well if you can iterate a bunch of different experiments to figure out what's. What's the best way to structure healthcare policy? What's the best way to structure education policy or transportation or social security? Whatever it is, run this experiment on a local state level, and then you get some you get some data to come in and say, oh, okay, Florida's doing well, or Alaska, whatever the the states are that are doing well, and states pay attention and they they kind of copy each other and and progressively move towards what's working. That would be one structural advantage to having instead of China, which is just one policy top down for a billion people, I think the the structure of the US in complement of the state and the federal government provides a, a structural advantage. Potentially it's slower, but it maybe it's it's more stable. Um, and I think of money as you could you could draw a similar analogy where if there's multiple layers of influence, you'll call it, then it's it has a structural advantage for stability. And depending on your design criteria, but if you wanted a currency that was designed for stability, it would probably have one that people could contribute to it. They could vote on the mechanism for it. We could determine, in the case of Bitcoin, it's predetermined how much yeah. will be allocated into the into the pool. But I just draw a very, I, I just have a large skepticism for the decision integrity of the uh, federal government across pretty much every department, including the Federal Reserve. And, 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 and I mean, yeah. a lot of it, this goes back to yeah. the distrust thing I was saying, right? Many people do, whether it's for the right reasons or not. I, I don't think anyone would disagree. Hey, being able to test things out in smaller settings and learn from that, assuming things scale the same way. I think that's one of the challenges with that statement is if it's going to work in uh, Alaska, that has no Mm. meaning that it'll work across the entire US, right? And I mean, I think we're essentially seeing that because of our system. But then why, why, with that, why can't we learn from other countries, right? I mean, if you want to talk about healthcare, most countries do better than we do. We, and it's not a fucking rocket science problem here. It's just a policy and politics problem, but we haven't learned that, right? And and it would be much better for us. It'd be much better for capitalism. As a person that's been doing startups since 25, for, for 25 years, every time I start a company, one of the biggest things we got to think about is, oh, healthcare is attached to a company. How do you, if you're going to quit your job, you're going to lose your healthcare to start a company. Yeah. Oh shit, you got to worry about that. I'm going to go change jobs and they don't have as good healthcare. Oh shit, I got to worry about that. Like what an asinine system just from a capitalistic perspective, right? Like why is my job and my ability to stay healthy or receive medical attention? Why is that? Why are those two things attached? Yeah. Like, holy crap. Dude, um, it, it comes from, it comes from a bad it comes from Roosevelt, 1942. After the war, there was incredible inflation. So he put in, so company, well, yeah, he put in a wage just, cap and a p- companies want to get around no, the wage I mean, cap. I know where it comes from. And it's, and it's just, it's the unintended consequences of an administrative decision, which you can still change, right? It could have been right at the time because, hey, you yeah. don't know better. And then you can change it. 
right? But we don't have that capacity anymore. Yeah, theoretically, could you learn from smaller experiments and stuff? I mean, I think there's most states I wouldn't live in in the U.S., right? Because they're just, they're doing crazy shit. So I guess what are we learning from those things? Yeah, I don't want Florida's education system. Holy shit. Like, yeah. I'm about a failed you know, institution generally, right? Texas is pretty bad too, with the exception of some of their few big public universities, but that's about it. So what, yeah, I mean, yeah, you could, you can absolutely learn from experiments, right? That's how we build companies and products. We try to do experiments and iterate and stuff. But that doesn't mean people are still different. Governments yeah. are, are a different thing, right? And policy is different. We can't even agree on a policy. We can't, they can't even get a, somebody to actually run the house right now voted in, <laughs> let alone actually pass any policy, right? We can't even start the process right now. Mm. It's, it's just kind of hilarious at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you, what do you make of the, of the, the meme culture. So what I mean by that is when people are creating memes, they're effectively they're creating yeah. ideas that are resonating with other people. And those ideas resonate with other people because it feels like an unexpressed truth. And then of course, yeah. through social media, it reverberates at the speed of light across the world. And it's, it, it, it almost reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen a beehive. Sometimes you'll see like a, a beehive that has a million bees on it. And you'll see these waves yeah. ripple throughout the beehive. And it feels kind of like that's what's happening across the earth is that there's like a meme that hits and it's like this, it's like, it just ripples across the whole world. Yeah. And it's almost like everyone gets a slight upgrade or change in their psychology and, and we're in residence together. Yeah. Tell me what you think about I that. I think those are really interesting, right? I mean, they serve a few different, but to your point, they can be funny. They can express a... Mm -hmm a hard truth in maybe a funny way that people aren't willing to say directly or things like that. But I think that fundamentally, I think, you know, memes are a shared expression, right? I mean, they become a meme because a lot of people are kind of resonated with, right? And when, whether that means agree or not, doesn't really matter. But, but I think that's, that's that tribal nature. That's, that's humanity. I mean, that shows you globally, we can have commonality just because we're from different countries or backgrounds or this or that. Doesn't mean we can't find those comments. Now, memes can also be super isolated, right? Within just the community, right? There's memes within the crypto community, within the trading community, but you know, there's memes right. within the sports community. But can but some of them escape and get bigger and bigger. And you know, I still love the the Jordan crying one, right? Whenever that pops up again, that where people use Jordan crying as a different for for various different memes or whatever. But I I think memes that the expression of kind of commonality, like that's that's a human truth, and it goes to show you like. We have, we, we have a lot of commonalities and it's, so in, it can be both a good and a bad way to spread something, right? I mean, because, but that's any piece of information, right? I mean, anything can be used for good or evil. A meme can be good. It can be evil, bad, whatever, but that's just the truth of, of us as humans and people. Do you think that you obviously are collecting a ton of data in the form of text and maybe yeah. other forms, images on stock twits? AI is obviously a new revolutionary technology that is yeah. differentiated by the access to large data sets. Twitter X yeah. has closed off the walls. I saw that Stack Overflow, which is the world's largest repository yeah. for developer research help Q&A, basically, laid off 23% of their workforce. And they attribute that to the... AI, growth yeah. of, of AI, which ironically AI got much of its data from Stack Overflow. So it's it's yeah. it's effectively just a new window to the same information in a new way. Do yeah, you what role do you see stock twits taking with AI? In particular, how how you relate to protect yeah. or grow your data set? Yeah. So I mean I think you know, the Stack Overflow is one of many very good examples of hey, there are real IP and copyright ownership issues, right? Because if you can, you know, go and scrape all of Stack Overflow and a few other related sites and, and GitHub and things like that. So I'm an engineer by background, right? If you can go get all of that, that's a really amazing body of knowledge. And then because computers can do a lot of things faster and generative AI models and large language models now have gotten to a point where they're really bad, you can put companies out of business, right? And, or harm them materially. I think that's a very real challenge. I mean, but there's a great opportunity on the other side. I think the the hard thing, and hey, this goes back to the whole distributed and uh, nature of information and decentralization and things like that, of how, do, how can you maintain fairness, but deliver the value to humanity? I think we would probably both agree and argue that 
hey, it's obviously much better if you can quickly type something in and get the right answer in a way that you can understand it within seconds versus I used to use Stack Overflow Rock and you'd have to spend a good amount of time to find the right answer on there, right? Yeah, and, you know, whether, a reason. Sometimes you found it in 10 minutes. Sometimes it took me like two days to find the right answer, right? So from that perspective, I mean, I think we, we have to figure out how to balance it. From a StockTwits perspective, we are fortunate because we have 14 years of, of messages and content and information built up. We have that asset there. Now we're currently being a little bit more careful. We're not like just jumping in all in. Oh, we're going to solve things with AI and, and the world's going to be better. But we are, we are going to express our copyright and IP rights against that information. But we also want to figure out, hey, what's a good way to utilize it? Whether that's partnering with folks that have the expertise and, and firepower to turn it into a social good, into something that we can deliver value back to at least our community, if not the broader investing and trading community. But, you know, if we, if every site that had data and content that was of value just was obligated to give it up, then we'd very quickly see those sites eventually go away, right? I mean, if Stack Overflow doesn't have a business model because all their information keeps getting scraped away, then Stack Overflow goes away and things keep going away. And eventually you run out of things to train the models, right? And we have to be careful about both sides, kind of that input, output, supply, demand, you know, wherever the analogy there is. But, you know, I think for us, it's an opportunity, but we're going to be pretty careful about it because also in our domain, we're dealing with people's money. I mean, when you're, that's where I think we want to be really cautious with the, the AI and financial services, right? I mean, I think there are some obvious kind of use cases and support and things of that nature. But when you start saying, hey, AI is going to help me invest Right now, at this point in time, I mean, in 2023, I think we want to be pretty careful because the we're not there. I don't think we're there yet from a, and in AI specifically, I mean like this LLM generative AI. AI has been used in finance for 20 years plus, right? Machine learning and stuff. That's very different. And when you think about you know, all these quant strategies and, and different strategies of that nature, that's all. I mean, AI is a very broad term, I think. In current time, we, we speak of AI right now. What's hot is the generative AI world, LLMs and stuff, which are a, a subset, albeit a powerful one, but a subset uh, of AI. I, I don't think we're there yet with LLMs where we can just be like, oh, we don't need financial advisors or we don't need people to double check that the answer was right. If you ask, okay, what is Microsoft's last da-da-da-da-da? Right. And if, even if one of those numbers is wrong and you're putting it into your model, if you're an investor and whatnot, that that's that's problematic because people trust these things to be implicitly kind of correct. Got it. So it sounds like you're defensively minded. You're aware that other countries are facing a threat from AI aggregation of data and then displacing them through yeah. a new uh, interface window. We'll call it with AI. And you've aggregated a, a ton of data and you're thinking about how to best use it. And it's clear that there's a probably a legal risk in launching an AI within SockTwits because you're recommending financial data or it, it potentially could, and that could pre present some risk. Right. Is there, I guess I wonder about this in, in the sense that would I, would I rather have access to a, a million people actively talking on a platform or would I rather have access yeah. to one person who's aggregated everything that's ever been said on that platform and combined it in the most sophisticated way? That's a terrific question. I don't, I was going to say, I don't know the answer to that because I, I don't know that there is a answer to that. Meaning, I think, sadly, the answer is it depends on what your goal is, right? And so if you're, you know, there, there's value to finding a precise answer. Mm -hmm. But if your question is more kind of open and general, hey, I want to learn about investing. How do I learn? Yeah, I mean, today you could just Google that and you'll get tons of different you know, YouTube videos. You'll get lots of different websites. You'll get a lot of people offering you discords and stuff like that. There is all of those. But again, if I go back to saying, hey, that's that's about tribe and community and connecting, you want to find the right place for that. And there's no one answer. There's no singularity to that answer, right? I mean, now, if you are asking a factual question or a you know, specific question that's like kind of, hey, what does... Tell me the sentiment of the community across Tesla 
and their current earnings reports. Yeah, if you can ask that more quickly without having to search that now, that happens to be a question. You can just go to the Tesla stream on StockTwits and see the sentiment meter, and you'll know the answer to that question right now. But it's perfectly fair to say, hey, good interface would that be? I just, I don't even want to have to go to the Tesla page. I just want to be able to type that in and get the sentiment or again, and, and with a blurb about, and here's what they're saying about Tesla's earnings this week or whatever. But I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of value added from LLMs and like generative AI in communicating with us. And I just think we want to be careful, but but there's also going to be a tremendous amount of just aggregation of data yeah. that is I mean, they make computers are much faster than us, but that's that's the benefit too to us. Right? Mm. I mean, if if institutional investors have access to these big computers and the big things as they as they have had for decades, that is the beauty of technology. Is now I have the same power that any mutual fund, ETF, hedge fund, generally speaking, has. I mean, there's still there's it's not perfect symmetry, but but I can get access to the the information gap, the information asymmetry is closing fast. And I think it just keeps going, closing faster and faster and faster. And that's the opportunity of you know, kind of a full level playing field. Time is the other yeah. leveling function. You know, that's, that's a- It's that's, fascinating because um, I, I, I agree with both of your points. The one that you made earlier in the conversation about there's no foreseeable end to the wealth inequality growing. And then at the same time, there's this data asymmetry propagating across the entire world yeah. and information asymmetry like effectively, whether I was born with a computer in Vietnam or born in Silicon Valley, yes. like that, that is becoming like really, really undifferentiated yeah. uh, in terms of access to the same economic potential. And, th- and yet we have increasing wealth inequality. Maybe that's just, maybe we're looking at it just within the United States. One thought I've had is that the yeah. U.S. has differentiated itself in the last hundred years by its technological revolution. And other countries now are getting online, like India and, and yeah. other large countries. And so the the level, the they're like, you know, it's like a le- you know a dam like at the Panama Canal where they have the levees yeah. where they, they open yeah, them up and they're like right, locks yeah. coming together. So maybe that's one context for how it could be. I, I just, I sometimes look, think about AI and think what could, what assuming I had the same access to AI, how could anyone ever make a living betting on anything other than what, an AI, the most advanced AI would come up with. The, the only advantage that a person would have would be something that's not, some data or information that's not accessible through computers. Yeah. Maybe it's like I'm interpreting well, the personality type of a leader of a company or some, some other. Well, like let, let me let me answer that with, with kind of what I've, I've said before, but also going back to kind of the wealth gap, right? So, hey, if information asymmetry, as that keeps coming down, that means the opportunity to build large wealth in the markets or wherever that information asymmetry is playing out is being reduced. And, and then secondarily, we have a whole system designed to give give advantages to those that already have the assets, right? And, hey, for... 60 years from 1940, post-World War II through, they'll call it 2008, there was a cohort of folks that had big advantages that built up large assets, and then they started making policy friendly towards themselves, you know, the 80s forward. And so now those policies just enable that asset to just kind of keep benefiting, right? And if your opportunities are smaller and smaller because everyone has access to the same information and same information asymmetry, uh, that, hey, I don't have the same opportunities to hit those home runs and stuff that people could have done when it was quieter, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, I think that's where those two things can be true and are being true, right? And today, that doesn't mean there's not still great opportunities to build tremendous wealth in the US. And like that is one place fundamentally where we are different than Many other places, not all others, but definitely many other places. So just one kind of on that. Now to your, to your question, like, hey, if you had this one God AI, right? Master AI, that was like the best AI in the world. Why would you do anything it didn't tell you? If, it, if you're asked something super factual, like how to build something where physics is important, uh, you probably should listen to that to a degree because that okay there, that's math and that's physics and that. But if you're if you're doing something that is still rooted fundamentally in humans participating and humans making decisions, and this goes back to markets. Markets are still at the end of the day. If, if markets were entirely run by computers, like 100, then yes, then that's kind of like whoever's computer is bigger is gonna win kind of thing. But 
if we still have human participants in the markets so and, and more of the markets are not, and for many years, by the way, I mean, quant systems have been like 70% of trading volume. So mm. it's not, we haven't had a scenario where computers are driving 70% of trading volume, but those computers are still programmed by humans, humans, right? Those quant models are reflective of a human's understanding of the data and the world. Now, some of them are much better than others, right? Like Jim Simmons and Rentac or the two sigmas of the world and stuff that have had D-Shaw and stuff like that. But and there'll be the next generation of those and the next generation of those. But if humans are still participating, that's where AI, as of today, right? Now, who knows? Again, how, how do we hit singularity, yeah. right? Can, can a machine be well, a I think- human essentially? I think one point is, yeah, it's it's ultimately it's ultimately an imperfect system from the from the computer standpoint if the humans are participating on the input level, but also on the management level. As long as humans have control of the money, then the yeah. then they'll be then they'll be competing AIs for distributing that money. And what that means is they'll be not just not just like white hat distributing mechanisms. They'll also be like black hat counterintelligence. What I mean, an example of that would be. Okay, your Rishi is using, and I'm using a different AI, and my AI right. is going to create a meme. That's I just saw you invested Apple. You went big into Apple. I just created a thousand memes and pushed them out onto all my accounts on how Apple is evil and Apple and 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 there's like this. Right, right. Okay, now I'm yeah. now I'm battling you. Now there's some competition happening, not just on the, not just on the performance of the company, but on the evaluation of the performance. Because I know it's not just about the performance; yeah. it's about what people are willing to value it at. Namely, GameStop, and that's a, a yeah. perfect and example. And by the way, there there are there are perfectly legitimate, healthy, okay, good ways to do that. But then there's also a ton of ways. I mean, because what you're also describing could also just be a simple pump and dump scheme, right? For yeah, is that nefarious? So, is yeah. is is pump and dump a nefarious tactic? Do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is nefarious, and it happens to also be illegal. But why is it nefarious? Yeah, I mean, I, just Make that. Oh, I mean, falsely again. So you are falsely trying to put information out there knowingly. You know this is bad information, incorrect information. You are putting out there to trick people again. Mm, like, and okay. that's so. Should you be allowed to lie to people and trick people for your own financial gain? Like in one world, in one type of society, sure. That's not the world of society I or many others want to live in. That's why you need to have rules to the game, right? That's why pump and dumps are illegal. Like, again, this, uh, and again, I don't like it, the free-for-all open society where anything goes and buyer beware and everyone has to watch their own back. That's just not how most humans are built, and nor, nor is that yeah. how most humans want to live. There are definitively a pocket of those folks, but you know, that's not, we have 8 billion people, however many, I think 8, 9 billion now, right? right? That's not a really good organizing principle to have a functioning planet. Why do you think we haven't seen more effects like AMC and GameStop since those have happened. When those happened, that was like all the rage. It was such a fascinating concept with that the community could organize together to prevent, to present a opposing financial force to the hedge funds. Go ahead. Well, I mean, so I think one of the key things to that was there was a fundamentally like poor risk management at a large scale by Mm. a set of hedge funds that presented that opportunity to do that. Mm. Most people aren't that let's call it sloppy with their risk management. And so like those opportunities are not like so abundant, right? I mean, Mm. people are constantly scanning for short interest and things like that. But, you know, most people, when they're putting on short positions and stuff, which are highly risky, right? But necessary for markets to function and for price discovery, but are highly risky. You know, they're doing it in a way that, hey, they can't get completely blown out like what happened with Melvin and related firms. So I think that was a very unique thing spotted at the right time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I argue, so people will say, oh man, that should have never happened, right? And this goes to kind of some of your, the commentary around like in the government, oh, how do you know, GameStop should never have happened. Well, GameStop wasn't the fault of like Wall Street Bets users and Reddit and like those folks. It was the fault of this bad risk management and exposure for this arguably not terrific company, but that had good brand value. And it was a moment of Main Street taking on Wall Street and a fuck the man kind of scenario that just 
all the things were right. Everyone was home at the time. Everyone had stimulus money on the side, right? I don't think we're going to see the conversion of that with all those things coming at the same point. That was very much a black swan moment for, for GameStop, AMC. On our platform, AMC actually maintained the number one most active ticker on StockTwits for 21, for 22. I haven't checked the data yet, like where it stands this year, but it's probably still in the top five, if not top three, or potentially even still one. And so AMC was another kind of example of that. We've seen it at smaller scales, but that that larger scale, like we would need all these things to kind of weirdly come together at the same time. But we, hmm. we've seen it with bankruptcies, right? You've seen it with the Hertzes and whatnot of the world where I get asked, hey, how do you identify a meme stock or something? And I think there's a few different factors there. I do think one part of it is, is that it's a brand name, right? I mean, like all these meme stocks we've had, are consumer brand names because we associate with that, whether it's GameStop or AMC in the movies or Hertz and rental cars, right? All these things. We're able to Bed Bath & Beyond, right? I mean, come on, who here didn't buy something for college to add Bed Bath & Beyond? I mean, that was like, that's that's what I identify Bed Bath & Beyond with, right? Getting ready for college and stuff. You know, you got to be this public consumer brand. You got to have, there's got to be some catalyst that kind of pits aside the Main Street versus Wall Street kind of context there, because that's a lot of what GameStop was about for people in the end. And by the people in the end, that it didn't end up well for, because if you're buying GameStop at 300, 400, it did not end up well for you. But it, it wasn't retail's fault. There was now then there was poor risk management on yeah. retail side, right? For people yeah. that were going in. But, you know, what, the other side is you could argue that wasn't maybe just also more an entertainment budget than an investing budget. And, yeah, yeah. and that's definitely not what the SEC wants to hear. That's not what yeah. regulators want to hear. How dare you make stocks? You know, but hey, you guys are like, you guys legalize the lotto and yeah. sports betting and stuff. So it's not like you really care about how like people losing the money. Let's not get, yeah. you know, it's not, you just don't like the you know, markets and exchanges are, they do have repercussions across a lot of other things. So I understand that. Like me betting on the bills, it wasn't, uh, now mm-hmm. I don't sports bet, but I'm a big bills fan and every year mm-hmm. we're going to win the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to have ripple effects through pension funds and endowments of hospitals and whatnot. So that's yeah. What, uh, I mean, I think. One, one thought and then one last question. Uh, one thought is that when I think about one potential uh, monetization strategy that you could implement is you have a ton yeah. of consumer, intelligent investor consumer data, and you could use yeah. AI in, in a sense to effectively aggregate uh, types of conversations that are happening and then allow premium yep. subscribers to, to get access to trends. Like what is trending? Because I imagine you're upstream from, from stock prices, right? People are going to be talking about something and then there's going to be a reaction in the yeah. market. And if you could see that, okay, here's the, the Google trends or the Google analytics of what people yeah. are talking about, then that that presents an investment opportunity and probably its own like inner circle of uh, conversations in and of itself. We'll let you into the beta in the coming months. Yeah, of, uh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, and something <laughs> more yeah I, mean, I mean, listen, we do know there's a lot of opportunity to help people identify movement, right? And like, mm-hmm. actually, like you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whether it's in the form of volatility, conversational volatility, and things like that, sentiment and trending don't always correlate with price. And I think that's the thing that everyone needs to, you know, kind of always learn to make sure. And and again, nothing we do is about giving investment advice. And it's meant, you know, to be just information only and, and whatnot. But yeah, there's a lot of like really rich you know, kind of signals to get out of it and then let people decide how to kind of yeah. use that or dive into that. You, know, you can go on StockTwits today and go to the market section and see what's trending right now, meaning what is what stocks, what's the number one stock right now that's trending? I don't even know. I can look it up. But that means, hey, it has an unusually high relative level of conversation. And maybe it's because of earnings. Maybe it's because of some announcement they made. Maybe it's because of something macro, right? If they're, you know, if, if they were an oil company and like their oil field blew up or something like that or whatever it might be. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's, that's, that's a very real opportunity for us that we, we want to kind of give, give that value back to the community and a kind of premium subscription model. And, and then a lot of things kind of related to that. It's exciting. It's a fun company yeah. to run, man. Last question is just how, how can, what would, what would be helpful for you? Is there anything in particular you're looking for or could help stock twits or Rishi? 
And where are you? I, are you on no. X or Twitter? Are you writing personally? Uh, I'm LinkedIn and stock tweets are probably the best. I mean, I've, I've been mm-hmm. on Twitter, X, whatever we're going to call it since 07, but I spend very little time there these days. LinkedIn, stock tweets, like those are going to be the, the best places. I'm on threads, but it doesn't feel like a lot of people are still there. But it goes back to what we've been talking about. We've been talking about AI a lot. Um, and I think there's tremendous opportunity there for us. We're in a learning phase still, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's where I, I just came back from a conference and the big thing was, I'm like, hey, I just want to talk to as many people that are both, you know, much, much better experts in AI and have the knowledge and perspective, but also coming from the angle and perspective of investing in markets and things like that. And so for for us, we're all just trying to learn to kind of the AI thing and, and how can we make sure that it's a positive contribution back to our community at least, but ideally to the broader trading and investing community and leveraging the assets that we have. And, and maybe that's then also partnering it up with other folks that have other rich assets that we maybe don't, right, in the form of data or other other contexts. But I think there's there's a lot to do there, but we're still we're still learning and we're very early in that hype cycle, right? I've done this startup thing for a while now. I've been through a few hype cycles, so I'm okay not being just jumping off uh, the edge of the cliff here right away. Oh, we just got to put a product out because I think mm-hmm. in our case, that's not the right decision. And we rather make sure, hey, let's learn and, and then give it the good college try. Awesome. Thanks for spending so much time with me, Rishi. This has been an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, we, we covered a lot of ground. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much and appreciate the opportunity. Talk soon. All right, Mike.